Before I start, I'm going to get uh, Amber to read the first passage of Ruth, because if you ever have a woman preach at your church, she's going to preach on Ruth. It's a law. Actually, I just decided to preach on Ruth, but um, she's going to read it. Should have had my paper Bible today. (laughs) Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Melon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the women was and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab, Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that that may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope... If I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would they therefore wait until you were grown, until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods, Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Okay. Uh, You can put the first... Oh, it's already there. Cool. (laughs) I brought slides. I'm so proud of myself. Um, Before I start, I just... I... What um, Anna said about me is... I don't know. It's true of you guys. Um, When I think of superheroes, I think of little kids in underoos. Did any of you have those with, like, the towel behind you? And you'd run out and charge. But... um, to have a church where you guys do stuff, you know, um, and are impacting your local community, you're doing stuff for overseas. Like, I, I was in Africa when 
those little boxes show up and just seeing the faces and running to my house and I got slippers and slippers were little flip-flops and you know it was like this prancing around and uh, yeah it's it's joy right that you're able to give to other people it's so cool um and then to have Aaron and Anna as your your pastors is just the best gift because you know you can call Aaron and he already knows what you're dealing with and then you don't have to say anything and he just prays over you and cry and it's better <laughs> and uh Anna makes real gingerbread cookies at Christmas you know like that's crazy so all right enough um let's pray and then I'll start Jesus um every time we come together as community you are here you love us you speak through us you take parts that are broken and you use even those. So, Lord, we just thank you for your love for us. Um, I just pray that you would be with me and with everyone else who's tired and poofy this morning. And we pray for all the people in our pockets who we're carrying this morning. We just pray for your blessing on their lives, too. In your name, amen. Okay, next slide. They were going to die uh, in a plane crash. That was their plan. Or that's what my grandma told me when I asked her what she would do without my grandpa when I was probably about nine years old. But of course, death mocks our plans because two years later, my grandpa died at 76 of a heart attack. And my grandma would outlive him by 23 years. Next slide. <laughs> Plans, projections, expectations. See, what she was telling me is that without my grandfather, she had no plan. Next slide. I stumbled on two stories this week that dealt with our expectations. One was an interview with an actress. The other was with an Olympian. And yes, I listened to talk radio on my way to work in the morning. Uh, the first was Drew Barrymore, famous as a child actress with a truly dysfunctional childhood. And Clara Hughes, famous for her success in cycling and speed skating in the Olympics. But uh, what compared these two kind of opposite people was uh, what expectations had done to their lives. Hughes grew up with an alcoholic father. She was reaching to addiction herself, and it was only sport, she said, that saved her. But it actually didn't. It gave her self-discipline and goals to pursue, but really she still had hopes and expectations that she had not realized. She says that deep down she had this strong longing for a fatherly relationship and she also wanted to feel like she was enough. Instead, she had a coach who was often really cruel. And when Hughes did the best skate of her life, as she called it, she called her dad. And he answered the phone in kind of a shaky stupor. And he didn't even recognize her voice on the phone. And while recovering from this disillusioning phone call, um, the French speed skating judge ran up to her 
and her congratulatory remarks were, think how good you'll do next time if you just lose five kilos. And she was just shattered. The medals, the achievements did not change those lifetime empty places. And this spiraled into just a debilitating depression as affirmation and enough were still unattainable. Barrymore also had an alcoholic father and a super dysfunctional mother who put her in what she calls two adult situations, which were, you know, crazy parties at uh, six, seven years old with alcohol and drugs and craziness. At 13, she spent a year in a psychiatric ward. And when she finished her year there, the nurses and doctors recommended to her that she should legally separate from her mom and uh, declare herself an adult. So she did that. At 14 years old, she's in an apartment in a rough area of town, living by herself, cleaning toilets um, at a restaurant, and being the kid who used to be famous. Next slide. Now... Barrymore's expectation, or view on expectations are that they are ruinous. She says, my dad once said to me that expectations are the mother of deformity, and I do not expect anything. She thinks that expectations make the people you're expecting something from feel awful and also bring you down. And far better, she says, it is to get on with things and fight back. She speaks to resilience and moving on. But later in the interview, she's asked if she would let her girls enter the acting profession. And she says, I would unfortunately have to risk them hating me. You wouldn't let them do it? No, I wouldn't. Like Hughes and sport, for Barrymore, identity was through acting. But... She says, film sets are a bizarre world. For me, it was better than my circumstances. It was a savior. For my children, it will not be better than their circumstances. They are going to be so safe and so loved that they won't need a film set to make their life better. So safe and so loved. It sounds so much like Hughes's affirmation and enough. Please, please, please let us have happiness. Please, please, please let us bypass pain and death. And if it does happen, please, please, please let us die together holding hands on an airplane. If we ever reach the beauty of safety, love, and enough, we would do anything to keep it. And risk aversion is apparently a very human response. We are loath to give up something we value if there's something else that seems lesser. If we have what we want, we are not going to risk losing that stability. Next slide. But if we have nothing to lose or have lost everything... This is the strange thing. We'll be way more reckless with our decisions because we're already at the bottom. We have nowhere to go but up. 
This is why even though we ignore statistical proof that lightning may strike us before the odds of winning the lottery, humans will still spend their daily coffee money for that fantastical expectation. Because, you know, there might be a bazillion dollar prize at the end and that's worth it. And all gambling has at its root a small monetary sacrifice being worth the possibility of great reward. We will always choose gain. We will always choose the secure. We will choose the sure thing. And we will only choose risk willingly if we're already at the bottom. Next slide. Uh, Today I had Amber read a really familiar passage from the book of Ruth. The focus of our attention whenever I've heard this passage read is usually Ruth's tender yet bonded commitment to her mother-in-law. But I would like to look at Naomi today. Because see, Naomi has already done this. I've lost everything and my only choice is risk thing. She has already walked from one nation to another. She could count the ribs on her little boys. They were so hungry. She faced displacement, being a foreigner, and settled in a different culture to give her family a better life. But that family, that hope, that promise, all she had, has just been stolen by death. She now has two loyal daughters-in-law who love her and no way to support them. She knows how long back to Bethlehem that road will take. And she knows that her status will be minuscule. She'll look at the land that used to be her husband's birthright, but that without him or her sons she has no access to. She knows she'll be living off the cast-off grain from the edge of the fields belonging to distant relatives. She knows that for her... The only thing that makes this risky travel backwards worth it is that she has the language, the customs, the people who know her past. She is going home. But why would she add this experiential and painful knowledge into the lives of her daughters? Why put the displacement that she has experienced here in Moab onto the young Why, when they too have lost everything, why not give them the only gift she can offer? The gift of a fresh start in another family, another life. Naomi is wanting in some way to bring good out of evil circumstance. Even after 10 years of being family, she explains her inability to fulfill any expectations. And they weep. They all grieve because they know she's telling them the truth. She cannot predict the future. And the risk of something arising out of these ashes is as hopeless as she can project. Like Thomas, my favorite doubting disciple, in his deep longing for truth and authenticity as a man who's just passed through the depths of grief He refuses to believe a story of resurrection until he puts his own fingers in nail-marked hands. Naomi refuses to promise to make everything better in a season that will demand that she beg and borrow and be humiliated in an uncertain 
and perilous life. All she can see is Barrymore's philosophy of numbing shattered expectations to move on and fight back. But then she's mature and compassionate, and she says, May the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Her wish for them, even in her destitution, is that they will feel so loved and so safe. Because they are all torn, they're all exposed, they're all vulnerable. All three have lost agency of their own lives, and Naomi is offering the only available alternative for her daughters-in-law that she sees. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And I don't know of anyone who has been through deep suffering that does not identify with Naomi's anguish in this place. To wonder if God himself has raised his fist. That God himself may have performed this violence on our very souls. Now we know how this story ends. That it doesn't just culminate in new marriage, but with a new lineage. That we start with sorrow and end in joy and completion. And it's even happier in scope. Because Ruth is grafted into the very story of the heritage of kings and Messiah. But in chapter 1, Naomi doesn't know any of this. She knows grief. She knows she has nothing to give or to offer. And she suggests, suggests to Ruth a realistic out. And she's refused. She argues with peer pressure. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. And Ruth clings and gives the most beautiful and repeated five sentences about covenant faithfulness. But today I'd like you to think about verse 18. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. And maybe you see the, okay, you obstinate human, since I can't win, you may as well come with me. But what I see is access. Access, the ability, the right, or permission to approach Next slide. When Clara Hughes reflects on her life and where she is now, she can hardly contain the emotion in her voice when she speaks of her husband, who found her and stood beside her, not in the podium, but by her bedside of darkness. Yes, Ruth is faithful when she doesn't have to be. But Naomi, I understand her courage. She gives access to another human into the very depths of the pain in her life. And though, even though she is saying nothing, she is allowing Ruth to walk with her. 
And many of us who have been raised in the bear it, get over it, overcome, be resilient, miss the overwhelming strength of Naomi in this moment to let herself be exposed and have another being actually be beside her in her pain. This is courage. This is what the resurrected God of wounded hands, feet, side did for his doubting disciple when he walked through a locked door to help his grieving friend believe. The creator pierces through darkness and offers us light. He does not raise his fist against us. He opens his wounded hand and offers to walk beside us. He takes our numb anxiety and shattered expectations and breathes new life. And even though together, we'll still have to silently walk all the way back to Bethlehem. He's going to walk beside us. Let's pray. God, you know what we carry. Um, You know the masks that we've had to hold up most of our lives. You know the places where we're insecure, where we've given away to fear, where we've given up because we cannot do it anymore. But Jesus, your power is authority and vulnerability. It's in that place where your Holy Spirit comes upon us and works through us that we can be courageous. So Lord, I just pray that um, we could just sit for a minute in silence and just look to the places in us that we need someone to walk with us. Or maybe there's someone in our heart that we know we need to go with them like Ruth did for Naomi. Naomi.